Hello and welcome to the Production Politics Podcast, the show where we look at some of the biggest political issues from around the world. I'm your host, Declan Carey, and today I'm joined by our contributing editor, James Malls, and our reporter, Mason Kwa. How are you doing, guys? I'm surviving. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, have, I have so far failed to die. <laughs> Positive start. Let's, Defiance let's of the COVID, yes. Start as we mean to go on. <laughs> Today, we're taking a look at the Intellectual Dark Web. That is a group of online political commentators who have rejected traditional media outlets and use their own platforms, particularly YouTube and Twitter, to spread some of their ideas. We've got figures like Jordan Peterson, we've got Dave Rubin, we've got Ben Shapiro, to name a few. What are these guys trying to achieve with their platforms? Well, I think that's part of the issue in and of itself is that it's not entirely clear what these people are trying to achieve. I think they're more characterised by what they're against than what they're for. It's a fairly ragtag coalition of people from various different political backgrounds. For example, we have people like Jordan Peterson, whose background isn't even in politics or even political commentary. He's a psychology professor. We have people like Ben Shapiro, who is um, undisputably a conservative figure. We have people like Dave Rubin, who is ostensibly a liberal, ostensibly being an op- the operative word there. And then we have people who are even further to the right, a lot of whom claim to be disenfranchised liberals, a lot of whom are upfront about being conservative, some of whom even may genuinely be able to claim to be some sort of liberal. It is a very broad coalition. They generally characterize themselves, like I say, by what they're against rather than what they're for. They criticize postmodernism. They criticize Marxism. They criticize the SJW left or wokeism or whatever they're calling it now. And I think that's more the bottom line about what their raison d'etre is, so to speak. Yeah, so SJW left, so social justice warriors, right? Um, The sort of... Yes, that's right. ...wokeness that that people have been complaining about. I I don't think SJW is really the term they're using anymore, is it? It's now woke Mm. left, isn't it? Um, Okay, yeah, I, I think that's a really good point about what are they against, because it is actually really difficult to pinpoint what these guys do stand for at times. Mason, what sort of issues have you seen these guys talking about or talking against? I would broadly agree. I think the main thing that they have that, you know, unifies them is a commitment against things like identity politics and political correctness. I would say that probably the other strand that they try to have in common with each other is a sort of general aesthetic of intellectualism. Uh, they There's a lot of effort that goes into presenting themselves as experts in whatever issue they're talking about and being, you know, the definitive voice as co- as compared to the emotional left that they make fun of. Yeah. Jordan Peterson spoke about w- how the intellectual dark web can be described. And this was on the Rubin Report, which a video which has had over 5 million views. It's about over an hour long of uh, Jordan Peterson, Dave Rubin and Ben Shapiro all talking about basically their own platforms. And the way Jordan Peterson described it, he said, what I'm doing and everyone within the intellectual dark web is doing is speaking to people as if they are autonomous individuals who are the bedrock of civilization and sovereignty, and that is anathema to the radical left. So they're definitely, it seems to me, aligning themselves against the left, like James was saying. There's a lot of things which we're uh, which are opposing here. So why are they so powerful? How have they built channels which now have millions of views? Well, I think there was already fertile ground there is the bottom line. I think that audience already existed and they simply capitalized on it. While I was preparing to come onto this podcast, I actually had a think about the history of this. Where did they all come from? And I came up with a vague um, 
the timeline of where this all came from. And I think the kind of genesis of this from an internet internet point of view has to start with the so-called new atheist movement. That was the likes of Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Ian Hersey Ali, and several figures like that who were very prominent, outspoken atheists and critics of religion about this time 15 years ago. Um, obviously, that trend has now died out. I don't think anyone really seriously talks about the new atheists now, especially not since Christopher Hitchens died. Um, but one of the spawns of that was the generation of atheist YouTubers that came along. This was people like the Amazing Atheist. Yes, he actually called himself that. Um, people like Sargon of Akkad, people like Thunderfoot. Now, a lot of these people, they weren't just talking about atheism, though. They were criticising um, religion. They were criticising creationism. But there was also very much a undercurrent of reactionary politics mixed in there. A lot of it was criticism of feminism, especially from the point of view of Sargon of Akkad. And one thing that largely links them to the new atheists was a very much an undercurrent of Islamophobia that ran through that community. Fast forward a couple of years and you get to the Gamergate controversy. This was to do with harassment of women in the video game industry. And onto the scene springs one Milo Yiannopoulos. Obviously, he had a, particular, a particularly spectacular fall from grace a couple of years later. But this really brought this community into the mainstream or, or semi-mainstream, perhaps mainstream within the Internet world and YouTube especially. This was exacerbated when Donald Trump became president and this community, the rationals, the skeptics, as they would call themselves and brand themselves that way, which was pretty tenuous. But the, the victory for Trump was a big watershed moment for them, for people like Sargon of Akkad, which then I think from there branched into two distinct directions. One was towards the intellectual dark web, which gave this community more of a respectable, mainstream friendly appeal. And then another group of them branched off into absolute outright, which then had a major PR, PR disaster. Am I going to put it that crassly with the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally? But the IDW has been far more successful at normalising these reactionary politics, especially with three points, I'd say, which are transphobia, anti-feminism and Islamophobia. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think I want to touch on one of those issues you mentioned that it is a very much a YouTube world in the yes. way that these audiences perhaps have been there for a long time but yeah when you go out of that youtube world perhaps not everybody has heard of them so is there something about youtube and twitter these online platforms which is particularly um connected to the success of these people one thing that was very instrumental over the past decade that's been sort of remedied in the last year has been just the way that the youtube algorithm is set up there used to be like a long-running joke that if you were to take any video playlist on YouTube and leave the auto-recommender running long enough, you would end up at Nazi propaganda. And one of the big steps in that process was the intellectual dark web. So there was a study from 2019 that showed that people who left, who watched religiously and commented frequently on intellectual dark web channels would gradually find themselves migrating to other channels with more radical beliefs specifically alt-right beliefs. So I think there's definitely something in how the website is set up and the way that all of these different people in the community network together and interact with each other, shout each other out, that allows them to sort of play off each other's reputations and build 
a sort of algorithmic uh, momentum that allows them to get cast an incredibly wide net. Yeah, so they're exploiting the, the, the way YouTube works, the way Twitter works to drum up appeal. And a, a lot of this is very controversial topics that they talk about. And people are definitely more likely to click on those, right? Because they want to find out why someone has said that. Now, perhaps it's time to look at some of the issues that they, that they do go into. For example, James, you alluded to uh, tran transgenderism. Right. This is for, for the for the intellectual doubt. This is a big topic for them. Some of the things that they've had to say in it have been particularly offensive to transgender people. For example, Jordan Peterson is known to not be comfortable using certain transgender pronouns. Um, this was against the law in Canada, which was passed, where it was said that people had to use those if requested, and he wasn't happy about that. There's also uh, Ben Shapiro who in, in one video spoke about it and argued that men are men, women are women. He couldn't see another way around that. So why do you think these issues, like trans rights, why do you think they're some of the, the biggest ones, the most important ones for this group of people? A lot of this has been framed around free speech. This was, obviously, this was Jordan Peterson's big rise to fame, was opposing this bill in Canada. And he framed it as a free speech issue. This was the way he managed to do it. He wasn't framing it as he's against trans people. He said, it is my free speech to be able to call people what they want. He says, it is some sort of, what, what is the term he uses? Postmodern neo-Marxist. Look, I think there is this moral panic as people like this will go on about. This Marxist plot is one thing you'll often hear from alt-right and certain members of the intellectual dark web to undermine what they'll call Western culture, Western values, whatever that even means. And... I think this moral panic around transgenderism has something to do with that. I mean, it's pretty easy to debunk Ben Shapiro's points, for example. He says, he goes on about men are women, men are men, women are women. For a trans woman to say that she is a woman is a lie, is what Ben Shapiro would say. That's a pretty easy point to debunk in normal social circumstances, if you were to see a trans woman, you would treat them as a woman if they presented as a woman. It's as simple as that. That's the reality. Yeah, definitely. There's that video which Ben Shapiro shared. It's called Ben Shapiro destroys transgenderism. And oh, I mean, just to, that, just to look at the title, I mean, there are issues with that, aren't they? I mean, that language. There are, there, are, there are people who unironically post videos like that. And I think Ben Shapiro even shares them himself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ben Shapiro, in an appearance on uh, PewDiePie, stated that he really enjoys the meme that you know he is destroying leftists and that he drinks their tears. He sees, like, he sees, you know, like the hatred that he gets for it as a affirmation of his beliefs. Yes, he literally wrote a book called How to Debate Leftists and Destroy Them. I mean, are these guys, <laughs> are these guys safe? And by that, I mean. There are some really dangerous ideas here, and there are some really dangerous, there's dangerous language being used, in, Absolutely, in my opinion. Yes. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, Mason, you mentioned that Ben Shapiro appeared on, on PewDiePie, that's a Swedish YouTuber, Felix Kjellberg. Um, so the messages that they're, they're putting out there, the, the platforms that they've built, are they reasonable? Are they safe? I, th I think they do measurable harm to real world people, you know, uh, like a, a lot of it, like to sort of bring it back to the free speech point, I would say that we accept free speech is valid outside of cases where it causes harm. We don't allow people to shout fire in a crowded nightclub, and we don't allow somebody to walk into a hospital pretending to be a doctor. For that same reason, I think it's harmful to make assertions about the validity of transgender people 
that is that can be nearly directly tied to the increases in substance abuse and suicidal behavior in those communities. I think that these people have done immeasurable harm to an already marginalized group. For what it's worth, in my own opinion, I, I'd agree with you, Mason, on that. I think by talking about these issues in in that way, they directly do cause consequences. And the issue I take is the fact that I actually think some of the some of the language is actually quite condescending, which they use when they talk about trans people. So, for example, um, there's a video by Dave Rubin where he talks about trans rights, and in the opening minute, he he clarifies that he's talking about transgender people rather than transformers from the show, the movie, Anna. And it's just I think that using that kind of language masks the real the the real thing that they're saying. You know, I think there is a dangerous message there when we talk about transgender people using mm-hmm. those terms when we almost fob them off and say, well, yeah, we're not talking about transformers. You know, it, it ridicules that whole idea. And I think it's it's almost what they are not saying at times, which is more powerful than actually what they say. Yeah. Well, I think I think Dave Rubin is one of the most egregious in terms of being able to give the these reactionary viewpoints a veneer of respectability. And I think often unintentionally so. To be honest, I think Dave Rubin is genuinely not very bright. But he's somebody who started his show after he left the Young Turks Network. That's a progressive YouTube network. He used to purport to be a liberal. He went off to form his own show, The Rubin Report, in 2015, saying he was going to have a free exchange of ideas. He was going to invite people on from both the right and the left to talk about their disagreements. Now, it's true to start with, he did have some guests from both sides of the political spectrum. He invited, for example, former Greek finance minister Yanis Varoufakis on his show, most definitely a leftist. He was finance minister under the Syriza government. At the same time, one of the big watershed moments was when he had Milo Yiannopoulos on his show, which is what really gave his platform a boost. And we've seen, and same with when he had Ben Shapiro on and when Jordan Peterson on, and we've seen him drift very steadily to the right, I think, on the whim of his audience to a large extent. And I think Dave Rubin himself is quite an impressionable person. Look, there's, we're quite right to talk about these people's speech often being potentially dangerous. In January 2017, there was um, a young man who attacked a mosque in uh, Quebec City. This guy was a Ben Shapiro fan. Ben Shapiro will obviously defend himself and say he didn't actively incite this. And it's difficult to draw the line as to where active incitement begins. Obviously, the fact he's a fan of someone's YouTube show does not indict them in and of itself. At the same time, we do have to look very carefully at the language these people use. If I remember correctly, the New Zealand mosque shooter uh, titled their manifesto after the Great Replacement, which is a theory that was spread about by Lauren Southern, another member that's like, you know, commonly thought to be part of the intellectual dark web. It is clear that like uh, these people do have a very like uh, close influence on a very alienated group of people who are prone to violent actions. Absolutely. And I think one of the key um, demographics, so to speak, to look at there would be the incel community and the extent to which they've had an influence on them. For people who don't know, incel is... Um, short for involuntary celibate they're a group of mostly young men on the internet who well clues in the name they are involuntary celibates they haven't been able to get it off with anyone and it's led to them having this very very warped view of reality a lot of them end up becoming very misogynistic and in the case of people 
the classic one being Elliot Roger, ended up being mass shooter. Yeah, so the, the, perhaps some of the audiences of these online channels are men who um, are angry, perhaps isolated in some respect as well. And yeah, people who are maybe going to read too much into some of these messages and can cause problems. Obviously, it's not cause and effect, you know, we can't we can't say it's that, but perhaps there is an influence there which needs to be looked at. John, Jordan Peterson spoke about this um, in, in a video on the Dave Rubin report, and he described his typical audience because they also travel to university auditoriums and they do lectures and things like that. Uh, he reckons his audience is typically between 30 to 40 years old and mm -hmm. about two-thirds men, one-third women. That's the people he reckons go, predominantly white as well. So, yeah, maybe that tells us something about who is watching these people online. A better way of looking at Jordan Peterson's audience is to look at how he managed to build a political audience from what wasn't originally, you know, a political following that he already had. Uh, like, Jordan Peterson's political fan base was largely built on the framework of existing fans that he had for a series of self-help books that he wrote, with, uh, I, at least one of which placed in the New York Times bestsellers list. And I think that there's a level of emotional exploitation to that, and that he took a bunch of people that we know were, you know, uh, alienated young people who were struggling with things like mental health and with the society that they were in, because those are the kind of people who buy self-help books. So there's a I think a rather provable link that the people that are being selected into his fan base are people who are vulnerable to these influences. I think it's incredibly harmful that, you know, like he's, I, I remember the interview you're talking about, he sort of waves it off, you know, as if it's a coincidence that these people are his fans, but it's exploitative, it's, it's harmful. He's selecting people who are already vulnerable and radicalizing them into believing that there's a postmodern neo-Marxist conspiracy. And let's, could I just for one second address the phrase postmodern neo-Marxist? There are a few points to make about it. First of all, Marxism is a modernist philosophy. It is not a postmodern philosophy. It betrays, the phrase itself betrays quite a staggering level of ignorance about what Marxism actually is. Second of all, there's another point that needs to be made, is that it does veer very close to sounding like the neo-Nazi conspiracy theory of cultural Marxism, and which, of course, riffed on the original actual Nazi conspiracy of cultural Bolshevism, the notion that there are these group of left-wing intellectuals, which is often code for Jewish left-wing intellectuals, who are actively seeking to undermine Western civilization in some form or another. I'm Obviously, I can't say for sure if that's Jordan Peterson's actual intention. Maybe he's naive to that point. Maybe he isn't. I don't know whether that's dead on him. But it is a point that needs to be pointed to, and people need to be careful about where these um, lines of discourse can lead. At the same time, if you look at Jordan Peterson's self-help books, on the surface, they seem fairly innocuous. I mean, let's take a look at the 12 rules for life. Here are the 12. You'll excuse me for blitzing through them. Stand up straight with your shoulders back. Treat yourself like someone you are responsible for helping. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to whom someone else is today. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world. That's probably one I would criticise, to be honest, as a rule. Uh, pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Tell the truth or at least don't lie. 
assume that the person you are listening to might know something you don't. Be precise in your speech. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Most of those, I think, are on the surface are fairly decent bits of advice, with the possible exception of the set your house in perfect order and maybe the one uh, number five one pertaining to children. At the same time, he uses those as a front for quite reactionary ideas if you actually read the book. Is it fair to say that then some of the ideas that they that they talk about are quite general, I think? Because, you know, you know when, when you mention that they talk about postmodernism and neocultural Marxism, it's really difficult, I think, to actually understand what that means. And I think there are many definitions within that, and it's unclear which one they are often referring to. When they talk about these sort of things, um, do we think that they're being vague for a reason? Is there a reason that they talk vaguely without often giving specific examples? Well, my personal view with regards Jordan Peterson, at least, and I think he, with regards Marxism, he just doesn't know what he's talking about. If I were feeling uncharitable, I would say that I think there's a malicious intent to, uh, like, deliberately not educating themselves on the opposition, because that way the enemy can be whoever they need it to be. It can be it can be the communists, it can be Antifa, it can be gender abolitionists. Uh, the important thing is that, you know, they are the enemy. And I think that's sort of a broad theme to how they sort of portray their opposition. When I watch these videos, I, I can't help but feel that there is a very uh, lack of the effort to try and reach agreement or compromise at any stage. And I think that's that's almost like they do try to, they often do say that they're trying to find compromise, but I rarely see it. It just seems so combative and they just seem to be completely like, if you believe that, then I have to be right on the other side. And I think we're missing that kind of link in the middle. But yeah, this seems particularly about these YouTubers that I've seen. There's just very little effort to, to meet in the middle and understand someone's point of view, which is kind of troubling, I think. To take the example of uh, like uh, gender identities and all of that, I, th I think it would take incredibly little effort for these people to sort of uh, accept probably a transmedicalist view of gender in which there are still only two genders, but that, you know, some people are born in the wrong body, and that can be diagnosed by a doctor. There is medical evidence that can point to it, and it doesn't contradict the other aspects of their worldview. But even that is a concession too far. Yeah, and of course, it's worth pointing out that sex and gender are not quite the same thing, right? That sex mm. is usually referred to the biological sex of a person, um, gender being often described as a, something performative, right? How, you know, how do we put that yeah. down? This was, I think, Judith Butler, right, who described it. So, yeah, they're definitely two different things. I want to look at why do you think some of these commentators have rejected traditional media outlets? You know, for, for example, Ben Shapiro was on Breitbart News, right? He was editor-at-large there for a while. Um, Jordan Peterson didn't come from that background. He's a clinical psychologist. He's a professor at University of Toronto. But why do these people reject traditional media outlets in favour of their own? I think in some cases, obviously this is pure speculation at this point, so don't quote me on any of this, but I think a lot of it isn't an intentional shunning of traditional media outlets necessarily. I think the way that the new media framework is set up was just simply more beneficial to them as Mason alluded to earlier with the YouTube algorithm, giving these ex increasingly extreme viewpoints um, more of a platform because it's more click-worthy and you'll keep getting recommended, uh, 
recommended that recommended that uh i think it's some i i think it's something that you know like different members of the intellectual dark web lean into to different extents so jordan peterson does a lot of appearances in mainstream media meanwhile ben shapiro like uh we saw how well he handled the andrew neil interview on the bbc uh, uh yeah, he was unable to hold up his beliefs to even the simplest questioning and i think that's uh, well, a big part of it andrew neil <laughs> yes <laughs> Yeah, and that's a really important point because I was going to mention that you got there before me, but, yeah. well, <laughs> but... We, can, we can circle back around to that. <laughs> no, that's because fine. I, I, th I think the point that that sort of highlights is that when you're posting videos that you have edited yourself to a platform like YouTube, you have absolute control of your own narrative. If you're if you're editing a debate that you've done, then you can edit out every part where somebody disagrees with you and you don't have an answer. If you're asked a question that you that you're unable to 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 I guess produce a good response to, then you don't include that in the video. You have full control over everything that goes in, and you can therefore present the best version of yourself. Yes, and of course, one advantage for some of these people who are in the intellectual dark web who veer into outright conspiracy theory territory and fake news and misinformation is that YouTube is not regulated by Ofcom. Yeah. Exactly, and that's a, that's a big thing on this. I want to go to Ben Shapiro's destroys transgenderism video again because I think <laughs> I know and I, I know. Bear with me, bear with me, um, because Mason, you said that it gives them absolute control, and I think that's a good example of that because when you listen to it, there's a there's a young student. It's a it's a female student who's asking him questions about uh, transgenderism and abortion as well, and it's very selective clips of him basically replying to her and absolutely debuking her idea proving that it was a you know that he's absolutely right and right i may be wrong on this but there's a lot of laughter and clapping but when you actually look at the people in the room everyone's just sort of sat there listening so it seems to me very sort of artificial and it seems that actually this has been created to show him mm. in a positive light it's not a fair balance of what's actually there i actually think that's really really dangerous and the andrew neil interview is the complete contrast of that where he is pinned down on a few topics and what does he do he left the interview because he was uncomfortable in that environment so retreated to his safe space that's it right yeah i mean we talk about snowflakes or they talk about snowflakes right I and mean, what does that say we've spoken generally about american commentators now let's come to our side of uh, our side of the world so let's talk about the uk james you already alluded to sargon of akkad uh, we Do should we say. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. Yeah, worth we should mentioning. clarify that we are not talking about the uh, the king of a card. <laughs> uh, you know, what one of the one of the earliest monarchs in human history. Yes, who died in two thousand two hundred seventy nine BC. We're talking a little bit more modern than that. This is Carl Benjamin, who I believe was a UKIP uh, MEP candidate, right in the UK. That's correct. Yes. Yes. First of all, I'd like to say what sort of grown man goes on the Internet and calls himself Sargon of Akkad. Second of all, like I alluded to earlier, this is someone who was originally somebody who put out a lot of content, saying he was a disaffected liberal, but he was criticizing certain strains of feminism. And I what was the line he put out? Like, feminism is, I'm not going to say it, but very critical of feminism um often very frequently to the point of straw man in fact very frequently veering into that territory and carl benjamin notoriously went on twitter to criticize the 
Labour MP Jess Phillips and said, I wouldn't even rape you. Absolute charm of this guy. Um, but yes, he's very, very, he's one of those people I would argue has not gone to the intellectual dark web so much as drifted full on into alt-right territory. Like you say, he was a candidate for the far-right British party UKIP in last year's European Parliament elections. He went and uh, I was working in Weymouth and Dorset at the time. Uh, he was off through the southwest doing a tour to go and uh, spread his uh, vile nonsense. And he dropped by Weymouth and um, some people were waiting. Apparently, I wasn't the reporter who was covering it, but um, apparently there were some people waiting in the wings with their milkshakes, but the police stopped them. <laughs> I heard about that. Yeah, I remember yes. thinking about that. Dangerous yeah. weapons, milkshakes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this guy does have 951,000 subscribers mm. on YouTube. That's a massive number of people. That oh, yeah. For. I mean, and, and you're absolutely right. There were some really offensive things which he's, he's mentioned, you know. Um, for example, I watched a video today. Uh, this was an interview with, uh, I believe it was the BBC, I might be wrong. But where he said, personally, I find racist jokes funny. That was in response to uh, a reporter who questioned him on it. He's also um, made jokes about people with disabilities as well. Um, I believe he called uh, a disabled person a retard at one point. And there are some, yeah, really, really strong And he's stuff. frequently used the N-word. Yeah. Well, he, he is on record before as having used the N-word. Yeah. And, you know, people people really watch this guy. So in the UK, who are the people watching these videos? Is it the same similar type of audience that we get in the US, you know, watching the intellectual dark web? Or is it slightly different? What do you make of that? I fear it is. I think we are looking at very much a similar audience here. Look, like I say, some of them veer more towards the alt-right. Some of them are more have this bigger veer of, veneer of respectability of the so-called intellectual dark web. There is a blurry territory in between. Though I think a lot of these people attract very similar audiences. Yeah, I think much like much like Jenna's presentation, the ultra and the intellectual dark web are not a binary but a spectrum. Do you expect to see more people like Carl Benjamin appearing in the UK? To be honest, not so much. I think, I mean, look, as Mason you rightly say, it is a spectrum. I think a lot of the people who were on the absolute outright have been forced to tone down their language and go more crypto mm. after Charlottesville. That was a watershed moment for the alt-right, where they were very much exposed for being neo-Nazis, neo-Confederates. Yeah. And yes, a lot of them have changed their rhetoric since then. Mm. Obviously, people like um, who are uh, who do appear to be overt neo-Nazis, like Richard Spencer, who was seen uh, what's the institution called? But he was giving a speech just after Trump got elected where he said, hail Trump, hail victory, hail our people. And people in the audience were pulling <clears throat> Roman salutes. Um, yeah. I I mean, the the algorithmic like uh, influences that allowed a lot of these people to get their original platforms are no longer there. YouTube uh, has changed a lot of how recommendations works. So a lot of these channels are now still accessible on the site but will no longer be recommended out of a blow to people which i think is a strong is a strong improvement so they'll still be able to get by on word of mouth but mm. the a lot of these people are being either like directly or indirectly deplatformed stefan manu is another figure who has been completely rem removed from i believe youtube twitch 
and Twitter within the span of a week. So I think, you know, the, the number of places where these people are able to share their views to people outside of their echo chambers is decreasing. So I think it's it going is, to become more polarized. I think it is decreasing. But like I say, there are some who are better at giving this a more presentable face. And I think one of the most, as I've mentioned to him earlier, one of the biggest examples of this is Dave Rubin someone who is quite impressionable, who's given a platform to some of the most egregious reactionaries on and off the web, and has done so completely uncritically. He invited people like Stefan Molyneux on his show. Stefan Molyneux was going off on a tangent about race and IQ, that whole bell curve argument, which has been repeatedly debunked. It's complete and utter nonsense, and Dave Rubin did not challenge him once. Okay. What should the response of the left be to people like that because they they do have a lot of followers you know the Rubin report is you know 1.3 million subscribers on on youtube um john peterson 2.6 million he's got 403 videos it's a hell of a lot of videos so there there are big followings here how does the left respond to to these people well i think there has been a growing um left-wing answer to this on youtube i think it's still not to the same extent as these right-wing reactionary figures, mm. but there is a growing alternate movement, which is so-called bread cube. We've seen content creators such as H Bomberguy in the UK and Sean and Philosophy Cube over in the States. We have ContraPoints, possibly the most notable example there. So there is a growing movement. At the same time, it is still young. It is still volatile. Obviously, ContraPoints came into controversy at the end of last year for inviting um, a trans man who had made some... I can't remember his name, who had made some... Buck Angel. That's the one, who had made some quite bigoted remarks about trans people before to read a line out on one of her videos, and she got big-time cancelled for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, like, left-wing YouTube is a thing. It schisms at, like, five-minute intervals. It's, it doesn't have the same, like, cohesive unity that the intellectual dark web has. So I do think that that's going to be, you know, uh, something that holds back the, their ability to grow. I, th I, do, I, do, I think the largest, like, people within that sphere are still smaller than most of the people that, than, like, pretty much any of the names that we've dropped uh, in this podcast so far. Yes, so there's, nobody, I think... there's, there's nobody who's cracked properly into the mainstream from BreadCube. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think like the the more effective uh, rebuke is deplatforming uh, in whichever way works. You know, uh, like uh, My Milo is probably the biggest example. We've mentioned his fall from grace. Uh, he he struggles in pretty much every way to get his views heard by anybody. He still has his free speech, but he's effectively been silenced. Uh, other figures have had similar incidents have severely curbed their ability to grow. Sargon of Akkad had his Patreon cut, so the financial interest that was backing him, uh, like from all of his fans giving him money, has been greatly reduced. Uh, I think he just gets by on YouTube ad money and similar sources now. So I think that, you know, attacking people in these ways is a great influence. I agree that deplatforming a lot of them is going to be the answer in the short term. At the same time, I do worry where this could go insofar as a lot of these reactionary figures could turn around and say, use the both sides fallacy and say, well, the alt left are just as bad. So why don't you go and 
demonetize their channels. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring that because I actually think that's a problem too. And I mean, look, these guys have got their own YouTube channels for a reason, and I think one of the reasons that is is because it's actually really hard to um, to control that or to you know do something about it. So, for example, imagine if we took down the Dave Rubin show from from YouTube. Imagine the the, the scandal that that would be online, the reaction to that. And the publicity that he would actually receive and then he would just make his own on his own website anyway and i just think actually that is quite deplatforming in this occasion would actually benefit a lot of them you know they do hammer home about free speech quite a lot and you know that's a persuasive argument for a lot of people and that's difficult to come about mm. I, I just wonder if do we need to be making more efforts to i don't know how best to describe it but more efforts to actually debate these people so for example do we need sort of maybe let more left-wing people to be going on the Dave Rubin show to try and show him why he's wrong? Do we need more people, you know, standing in front of Ben Shapiro and trying to prove them wrong? I, I don't think um, Dave Rubin's going to have many left-wing people on his show anyway. Let's face yeah. it. Um, I, I think, you know, like, the exact approach that needs to be taken is dependent on the individual, right? Like, uh, it doesn't matter how good you are at presenting your arguments to Ben Shapiro, because Ben Shapiro controls who has access to the microphone, yes. you know, uh, in the in the format that he sets up his debates, it doesn't matter what the opposition is. So I think that is a situation where just you know, uh, not not giving him anything to work with would be the better response. Yeah, and uh, of course he has control over the edit as well, right? The actual what mm -hmm. what comes out at the end. That too. I don't. I don't, look. I don't think we should be too trigger happy about the platform again. When we do, we need to yeah. be super clear and super specific about why these people are being deplatformed. Mm. Yeah. Like. Uh, yes. So you know, deplatforming. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a cure all. I'm not advocating for any form of state sponsored censorship. But I think the case that could be made is that you know. All of, the, all of the people involved in this who don't have a good grasp of optics are breaking the terms of service of the platforms that they're on. Yes. Yeah, and that needs to be looked at for sure. YouTube terms yeah. of service, Twitter terms of service, definitely. I mean, to give to give a example that was wheeled out a few years ago by some people who argue in favour of um, giving a platform to these people was... Um, when Nick Griffin, the leader of the British National Party in the UK, was invited on Question Time. And people, he, he went on Question Time, this far-right figure who is an unabashed white supremacist, an anti-Semite, and homophobe, was given a platform on Question Time and made an absolute fool of himself. And people often wheel that out as an example of give them enough mm. rope and they'll hang themselves. Trouble is, give somebody enough rope who knows what they're doing with it and we'll be the ones who end up in the gallows. Yeah, yeah. The plenty problem. of people have shown since then that they know how to wield mm. those platforms. They've learned from the mistakes of people who've made a fool of themselves. Yeah. If if I were to go back to what I think is the foundational example of uh, this sort of uh, equal representation on media being used to the detriment of everybody, it would be the tobacco lobby. Because for a long time, you know, talk shows would have two people on. One person, a uh, medical researcher, knows this stuff. Second person, tobacco researcher, knows a lot about genetics. And both people are given equal speaking time, which means that to an audience who doesn't understand the scientific points that both are making, both positions are presented as equally valid. Yeah. So we do have to remember that while we are talking about, you know, these people, they are a very small group with, 
a small a small like fan base on the scale of electoral politics yeah and so. it's, it's worth mentioning that a lot of these guys are very well educated and very skilled debaters it has to be said you know so yes. you know you look at people like um like ben shapiro he studied at harvard law school you know you've got um, jordan peterson who's a clinical psychologist they, they are from academic backgrounds and they are skilled at debating and it can risk looking bad yeah i definitely agree with you guys on that um yeah but i just i do feel maybe debate is the way forward with this one um you've got to we've got to challenge them we've got to to make them look foolish i think andrew neil did it really well we, we need more examples of that to combat this in my opinion mm. yeah um all right then there's one more thing we have to talk about um cider um i'm, I'm gonna ask james to describe for our listeners what i'm what i mean by this okay <laughs> This should be terrific. Um, so Jordan Peterson once went on Joe Rogan's podcast and they were talking about, because Jordan Peterson has this odd diet, what is it, an all beef diet he has. And he was talking about his diet with Joe Rogan. And he was saying whenever he ate something he wasn't supposed to, that he had odd reactions to it. And one example he gave was when he tried um, drinking some apple cider and he then claims that as a result of eating the uh eating the cider drinking the cider he didn't sleep for a month and that it led to him to being in a state of pure terror and he i think he said the results were absolutely catastrophic and the sheer hyperbole and sheer just general strangeness of that line just i mean i'm not entirely sure how to interpret that what do you guys think yeah, it does. Uh, it does say something, you know. For for me, I mean, this is a clinical psychologist, an educated guy. I, I think he knows full well what he's doing in that video. I I, I think he's trying to. I, I think it's about attention, to be honest. I think he's trying to get attention for his platform and his videos because it's something funny, which people, you know, who maybe dislike him, are maybe going to watch that, you know. And then he gets another view, and then someone sees, an, you know, another click on yes. the video. So for me, it's about attention and, and nothing more. And it actually says a lot about the type of platform that they're on and what they're using it for. <laughs> I think it also mm. lends it uh, lends itself into the idea of, when he has these diets and stuff like that, lends itself into the idea of Jordan Peterson as almost this sort of cult leader, this sort of mystical figure. The lobster dad, eh? <laughs> <laughs> but you, want, you, want to, you want to quickly explain that whole lobster thing, yeah. Peterson? I've, I've done uh, cider, I'll inflict <laughs> that one on you. Yeah. Uh, one... Like when, uh, when he was still more focused on self-help content, one thing that Jordan Peterson liked to talk a lot about was the, I guess, uh, neurochemistry of lobsters and analogous pathways in humans. And this is something that his community decided to create a lot of internet memes about. And you can, you can even find readily accessible pictures of him posing with lobsters because it is something that he does lean into. <laughs> <laughs> that said, like when it comes to like the paleo diet and other things, you know, I okay, I I am I'm regretting at this point using the Linus Pauling analogy last week because <laughs> I think the comparison to a Nobel Prize winning biochemist who believed that orange juice can cure cancer is roughly equivalent to a clinical psychologist who believes that we should imitate lobsters. Look, I think there's one thing that really needs to be said about Jordan Peterson and a lot of people to this end is that being an expert in one field does not mean you're going to be smart about everything. 
that, that should exactly be an obvious it. point. That should be an obvious point, but to many people, it seems to be need to be made. Yeah, and I, I can't help but feel that's something YouTube encourages. You know, it encourages everyone to have an opinion on everything. And uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's healthy either. Yeah, it, you know, frankly, can be very dangerous. Okay, so we've spoken about the intellectual dark web. Um, we've explained some of the the best and worst, perhaps. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it. Um, yeah, thanks very much for listening. Uh, guys, thanks a lot for your opinions. Um, for our listeners, yeah, make sure to follow us on, on Twitter and social media, Redaction Politics, Redaction News. And yeah, let us know if you <laughs> have seen any of those videos. Um, thanks a lot for your time, guys, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.